0: More than 82 million people in the world have been forcibly displaced from their homes. That's around the entire population of a country like Germany or Turkey. And it's more than ever, despite the pandemic making it harder for refugees to cross borders. On World Refugee Day, we talked to the head of the United Nations Refugee Agency
1: the impact will be much more long-lasting on refugees and displaced than on other groups. We need to make sure that they are included once the economy picks up again.
0: UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, tells Radio Davos of his hopes and fears for displaced people as the world continues to struggle with COVID-19. And he calls it a scandal that richer countries are vaccinating children at low risk from the virus, while refugees in the countries that host the majority of them remain at the back of a long queue.
1: Kids are being vaccinated, while vulnerable people out there will have to wait months for their first shot to come this is the scandal that needs to be corrected
0: and we'll hear from someone who knows what it feels like to grow up on the run from your home and in fear for your life
2: families become so hopeless separated for life Believe in that endless sense of unknowingness, not knowing what will happen again. Radio
0: Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the world's biggest problems and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, and with a look at the future for 82 million displaced people and refugees...
2: With COVID came a lot of learning that we are all human, we are all fragile, we just don't need to wait for the suffering to knock our doors before we act in the care for those who are suffering.
0: This is Radio Davos. So I'm delighted to welcome Filippo Grandi, who's the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. How are you, Filippo?
1: Very good. Uh, thank you very much and thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks Thanks for joining us to talk about the whole situation of refugees in general. It's World Refugee Day, one of these days that's meant to raise awareness for refugees. Is there one thing on, on a day like this that you would hope people were aware of that maybe there's a risk they're not aware of when it comes to refugees?
1: There's many things, but maybe one in particular, I think... Um, is important to repeat every year on World Refugee Day. Most of these 80 plus million people we're talking about, refugees, displaced people, are in poor countries. Most of them, there's so much perception that the refugee problem is a rich people's problem, that we have forgotten, most people have forgotten, that in reality 90% of those 80 million plus are in countries that would be considered poor or middle income, countries with few resources to deal with these massive problems. That's one fundamental point that I'd like everybody to remember on this day.
0: So this is a day that happens every year to raise awareness This time, I suppose, the big change is the pandemic. We've had a year of COVID-19. How has that affected refugees?
1: Well, first of all, it has affected refugees as everybody else, from the health point of view. Many got sick. Unfortunately, many died. But that was not fundamentally different from what happened To everybody else especially among the most vulnerable categories of people where i think the impact um, has been felt specifically for people on the move is in two areas one borders got more and more difficult to cross for refugees in particular Uh, crossing borders is a life-saving act but uh, we live in a world in which crossing borders has become a liability from the health point of view. So that contrast has been a very specific one that we've had to manage with states in the last few months, often successfully, but it has been complex. The other area, of course, is what I think refugees share with really the poorest of the poor in the world, uh, the social and economic impact, livelihoods lost, jobs interrupted or finished because of lockdowns. Refugees depend on the type of economy that lockdowns have impacted the most. And it's not just the economy, it's also the education system. We've struggled so much in the past, I would say, uh, five to 10 years, trying to improve the enrollment figures for refugees in the education system. They're very low, they're much lower than the non-refugee population. And unfortunately, I think COVID with schools closed for extended period of time with poverty rising has been a blow to those efforts. So we have to start again and we have to invest again to ensure that refugees can go to school and especially refugee girls can go to school.
0: And how has the pandemic impacted on the UNHCR's work. I imagine you have teams of people moving around the world. That's been much more difficult uh, over the last year. Could you give us some examples of how things have been made more difficult for you?
1: Well, like everybody else, we had to adapt and do a lot more than before, sometimes from our living rooms or from through a screen, and some aspects of our work could be adapted. Um, the more uh, administrative aspect or, you know, meetings and conferences that we have to attend. But I think that for an organization like ours, this is tough because uh, fundamentally our work is field-based. We are out there where the refugees, the displaced, the stateless people are. And that has been very challenging in some situations when where lockdown affected our teams. You know, I think there's been a lot of understanding on the part of government that humanitarian workers, including UNHCR workers, had to be considered the same way as they considered health workers. So people that w- had to be able to continue to work and operate in person with all the due precautions. Taken because it was vital, so we managed to do that. But of course, it required negotiation. It was not only always possible. One thing that I would conclude from this is that, in spite of it all, uh, you know, the UN coined this slogan at the beginning: "We stay and deliver." We definitely stayed and delivered throughout, and we continue to stay and deliver out there on the humanitarian frontlines, in spite of COVID. And now, of course with vaccinations coming. uh, There is some hope that we can go back to a more normal way of being out there. It's so important that we are in contact with the refugees and the other people we care for.
0: Maybe you can just update us on how vaccine drive is going in refugee populations.
1: I am an advocate for refugees. That's one of my main jobs. But here I would say the problem is not refugees. The problem is, poor countries. I go back to the first point that I made. Most refugees, most displaced people, most stateless people, these are all the groups we deal with, find themselves in countries that are with few resources. And unfortunately, they have few vaccines, that have received few vaccines. This is the fundamental problem. Most leaders I've been meeting in my last uh, trips in Africa, in the Middle East, in Latin America, have told me, of course, there's no problem. We will include refugees in our vaccination campaigns, and they are including them, but we don't have vaccines for anybody. It's not a matter of being a refugee or a national. We don't have vaccines. So, Definitely, I think the problem is not inequality in respect of refugees, is inequality between countries. That's dramatic, as we all know. And I think that I'm actually surprised that there is not not even more outcry about what a scandal it is. I I live in Switzerland. I live in Europe. Uh, Here now, Kids are being vaccinated. Kids are being vaccinated, while old, fragile, vulnerable people out there will have to wait months, including refugees, for their first shot to come. This is the scandal that needs to be corrected. I was encouraged a few days ago to see huge pledges being made uh, to to the COVAX platform, to this uh, platform meant to be for poorer countries. But uh, I hope it's not too little and too late, It cannot be, it has to be accelerated.
0: I suppose there's a risk as well if refugee communities are not vaccinated, not only have you got a spread of the disease, there's also the risk of new mutant variations that will come back and haunt the rest of the world if it's not addressed.
1: Yeah, and uh, let me also qualify a bit better what I said earlier. The fundamental point remains the one I've made, vaccine equity in general or let's try to restore whatever we can of that equity that we failed to achieve in the early phases of the vaccination uh, drive. Um, But it is also true, and I can give you many examples, that um, refugees, displaced people are often in very remote and disadvantaged areas of of certain countries. delivering the vaccination there will will have additional costs. That's why we do need additional funds, specific funds for refugee-related vaccination campaigns.
0: Are you able to give us any examples?
1: Absolutely. I uh, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Kenya. That was one of my most recent trips. And when I spoke to both precedence, they said, sure, you know, no problem about including refugees. And both countries host large numbers of refugees. But once we get the vaccine, we need help, you know, to transport the vaccines to these remote areas, to, you know, vaccination require huge communication campaigns, and they may be a bit more challenging in those contexts. Likewise. In Bangladesh, Cox's Bazar, almost a million Rohingya refugees, they live in a very remote area. We will need to help the government once that vaccination drive begins and many other such examples. And to go back to your point, uh, yes, of course, that's the key issue, right? That uh, if you exclude, even not willingly, you exclude because of lack of resources, lack of vaccines themselves, uh, entire groups or countries, uh, the risk of backfiring globally is is very, very high. You know, the, this slogan that we have heard and has been maybe a repeated a little bit too many times that we will not be safe until everybody's safe <laughs> is actually the most true slogan of, of the many that have been coined around the pandemic.
0: Have you come across any uh, kind of vaccine resistance? I mean, we talk about it in the West, anti-vaxxers and vaccine hesitancy.
1: Is that something you also have to deal with? We do. We do see a lot of that resistance. In fact, yesterday, for example, I was um, in a call with uh, a number of our regional people and they reported back that this is now increasingly one of the main issues that we have to tackle. Uh, And this is not just refugees. This is not specific to refugees, but you have a northern global no trend, but you have also suspicions that are growing in many parts of the world. And we need to address this. I, I This is why one of the most important things that we have learned through the pandemic, dealing as we do with the communities in so many different parts of the world, with so many different contexts, challenges, cultures, languages, is that communication is key. And uh, even more importantly, I think, it is key to work with the communities themselves. For years, we've been debating how can we associate the people we work for, refugees, displaced, stateless, more to our decision-making process. Somehow, the pandemic has obliged us to accelerate that process because we depended on them. If you want to win resistance, you have to work with the communities. We, you have to work with community leaders, with religious leaders, with traditional leaders. And we've done a lot of that, not only for to address hesitancy and resistances, but also simply to explain the logistics of vaccination, for example, or uh, distributing PPE and, you know, all the other things that we had to do in the last few months. That's very, very significant. And I think that this is one of the pluses that we can take out of this horrible period, you know, learning to work more with the communities for which we exist.
0: Again, are there any examples that you would highlight where that that has worked well?
1: It has worked well um, in situations that are... not not the best situations, but situations that in this context are practical, if you wish. Camps, you know, there's always this perception that refugees are in camps. In fact, it's a minority of refugees that are in camps. But where they are, it was easier to organize this, to organize communication, to sit down with community leaders and ensure that messages were passed. But we made a conscious effort not to limit this to camps, but to also do it in places where refugees um, people on the move are in the community in the Sahel for example in Burkina Faso one million plus internally displaced people in a small country in a terrible situation of insecurity. We had to go through the community to pass messages related to COVID prevention and cure. The Venezuelans across Latin America, almost five million of them in the region, we had to do the same. They live mostly in disadvantaged areas of big urban centres in a region that has been battered by COVID. So we had to do that as well. This is the type of work that we've been doing, often with governments, and we've learned a lot around those experiences.
0: So what's the situation now and in the coming months? Is there light at the end of the COVID tunnel yet? Or is the work you're doing in regions where COVID is still just raging through the populations?
1: Well, I think from the health point of view, Like everybody else, we have to hope that the vaccination drive as it expands, as it improves in quality, and this will be the case as we go forward, uh, will give us a light at the end of the health tunnel. But uh, we will have to deal with the consequences in the areas that I have mentioned. And those consequences for many other vulnerable people will be long lasting. We hear a lot about you know, the economy picking up quickly, like often happens after big crises uh, about GDPs rising, about the situation improving rapidly. I am just worried that this resumption of economic life will be of benefit only to those that in fact have been impacted but less than the most vulnerable and that the most vulnerable will be left even further behind uh, you know I, i'm not an economist but if you look at the projections i've i've seen graphs on how the economy will restart already you can see a huge difference between the speed and size of that restart in rich countries and in poor countries so you'll have a divide there that is You know, the risk is that it becomes bigger. And within those poor countries also, between more privileged and less privileged group, including refugees, that divide may be big. So, you know, the slogan of the sustainable development goals is no one should be left behind. The risk of that being left behind is much higher now than it was a year and a half ago. And this is where we need to focus in the next few years.
0: If millions of people have found the work they had gone because of COVID and that's happened to people who aren't refugees and people who are refugees. What can the UNHCR or governments or other NGOs or communities or people themselves, what, what can we do to get back to
1: where we were a year ago and to improve things further? I think it is very important to do two things. One is short term and it is, I would almost say, humanitarian. It's relief we and many other organizations have launched for all these disadvantaged groups, cash programs, distribute cash. You know, after all, what has the world done to respond to the economic impact of COVID has put a lot of cash into the system. So we need to make sure that also these people receive that cash so that can keep going during this transition phase. But more importantly, because this is not sustainable in the very long term, we need to ensure that all these groups, including refugees, are included as much as possible in the national relief packages that are being put out. And that once the economy resumes, that they have access to the labor market. Because this is a very important point. There are situations, take Bangladesh, for example, or a few other places where refugees are still kept a little bit apart from society where you know they don't have that access. And without that access, the impact will be much more long-lasting on them than on other groups. So we need to make sure that they are included also in the economic activities once this becomes possible again, once the economy picks up again. I'm a bit worried about that because I think that, as I said earlier, it was not such a huge problem convincing governments to include refugees and displaced in the um, health response. I think there was a clear understanding that if you left them out, it would be a problem for everybody. But it will be politically much more difficult for government under pressure from the economic point of view to say, you know, what we're doing uh, encompasses host communities or national communities and refugees as well. Politically, it may become more uh, sensitive in places like Lebanon, for example, and other countries where the presence of refugees is very big and very sensitive. This is where we will have to work, not just by ourselves, but with governments, of course, donor partners, international financial institutions, to ensure that that inclusion at all levels happens.
0: So you're talking about countries which hosts huge refugee populations like Lebanon. What about those countries, uh, maybe the richer countries, the, the Western countries that don't have such a huge proportion of refugees, but who are important donor countries for the kind of work you're doing? They're concentrating on their own economies. They've taken on massive amounts of public debt. Is there a risk that also their concern and their financing for the kind of work you're talking about will suffer now as they're struggling to deal with the economic fallout of the pandemic?
1: There is a risk, of course, that the need to offset the big expenditure of last year and this year um, has a repercussion on aid budgets. Although, frankly, if you look at the type of money that has been mobilized to respond to COVID and you look at the aid budgets, um, the proportion is staggering. One is huge and one is very small, comparatively speaking. So I do hope that governments will have a better judgment than that and will not take it on aid budgets to compensate for the large expenditure. But the risk is there. And we've already seen some countries reducing aid budgets. We, I think it's of public knowledge that the UK, for example, has reduced aid budgets, although the discussion is still ongoing and although we have assurances that it will be a temporary measure. But I think it's a, it's a miscalculation to do that. Look, you know, it, like I said, the health argument is perhaps easier to understand and accept than the economic argument. But I think if the pandemic has taught us something, is that we're really all on the same boat here. And this is not just about the virus going from one to the other. But, you know, poverty, exclusion, vulnerabilities, they're also pandemics in a way. And they may not be transmitted through droplets like the virus does. But if they are not addressed, the repercussions that they have, not only locally and regionally, but also globally, can be pretty devastating, especially on this scale, in terms of instability, in terms of insecurity, in terms of uh, unnecessary migration. So I think it's a it's important that the conscience of this seeps into government and that they are courageous enough to tell their constituencies, look, we have to fasten our our belts, but let's not penalise aid, especially humanitarian aid, because it will be very counterproductive.
0: I'd like to ask you something about the other big global challenge, which is climate change. And in this year, we're building up to this COP26 conference in November. It's high on the agenda. But there's a big displacement angle to climate change, isn't there? Could, could you tell us something about what you see as the impact of climate change on displacement of people?
1: There is no doubt whatsoever. There is ample evidence that the climate emergency displaces people. But it does this in many different ways. It's not as simple as that. It does it sometimes brutally when nature gets very angry, but it does it also in more complex ways. For example, in the Sahel region in Africa, West Africa, or in the Horn of Africa, Northern Mozambique, Central America, we see resources available to rural communities in particular impacted by climate change, becoming more scarce, generating therefore community conflict, which often becomes ethnic and from there political and sometimes religious and is manipulated, especially in situations of weak governance by very radical groups, by terrorists. And it translates into devastating consequences for civilian populations. So you see, in one sentence, I've basically tried to summarize this big chain that goes or that includes, I don't know what starts first, but it includes resources, it includes governance, it includes climate and many other factors. So, really, it is a very complex issue. But displacement, there is no doubt, is a consequence of that, that needs to be taken into account, needs to be managed essentially through humanitarian means when it is very sudden, in particular, through prevention. This can also be done. But if it has to happen, then it can, if it is especially a slow movement, it can be managed, but it requires a lot of specific intervention. We don't talk about climate refugees. This is a bit of a misnomer. But, uh, but people are displaced and have protection needs if they are displaced. This is a very important aspect of the climate discussion. And I do hope that increasingly states and other important actors take this into account. Filippo Grandi, High Commissioner for
0: Refugees. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. You're listening to Radio Davos on World Refugee Day. After the break, we hear from someone born on the run from a murderous militia who's used his experience to help other displaced people. We'll be right back after this. Is artificial intelligence your friend or is it your foe? I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. This podcast surveys the global landscape for inspiration and lessons in developing responsible, trustworthy artificial intelligence. From prominent politicians to investigative journalists, from award-winning academics to nationally recognized authors, we interview key players across the globe to bring you the latest developments and most dynamic perspectives on artificial intelligence today. We release new episodes each week. So please subscribe and find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other major platforms. Welcome back to Radio Davos. Before the break, we spoke to Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commission for Refugees. Now we go to Kampala in Uganda to hear firsthand what it's like to be a forcibly displaced person. Victor Ochen spent the first two decades of his life going from camp to camp in northern Uganda, as his family fled a militia called the Lord's Resistance Army. He now runs his own foundation, the African Youth Initiative Network, to help people suffering a similar plight. I started by asking Victor to describe his early life.
2: I was born and raised in the northern part of Uganda. I grew up in a district called Lira, one of the areas that has been affected by decades and decades of violent conflict between the government and the rebels of the Lord Resistance Army, as well as several other militia groups that has been operating in the region. So growing up in a war zone as a child, we were always forced out of homes. We're always displaced, and uh, you know, every time and again, uh, spending our entire childhood in conflict means we are we we'll spend the life of displacement, we we'll live the life of displacement from one part of the country to another part of the country, but also most important, every next few days, we we'll would set up a home, build we'll up a place in a, a settlement or a camp setting somewhere, then, few days after the rebels would come and burn it down, abduct people, kill people. So this is the kind of life I grew up in. This is the life I I grew up witnessing, but also growing up side by side with the South Sudanese refugees who had fled to Uganda.
0: And how old were you when all that started? Were you born into that kind of conflict?
2: We were actually born in the conflict because I remember Uganda was going through the post-Iliamines era. From the time of uh, you know colonial power, the country had always not been through uh, settings of peaceful political transition. There's been so many military coups in the region, and the worst of the worst was the dictatorship of Idi Amin that went for nine years in the country. And then in the process, the country were born in in early 80s, where the post Idi Amins you know in a nation where people were struggling to get back their life after years and years of uh, dictatorship and you know brutal leadership by Idi Amin and that led to uh, a community that had so many guerrilla fighting going on so many military forces were operating alongside all in search for power and yes our whole I was when we started we were born in it we were born in war we were born in the community community affected by war we were born in society where nothing was happening except struggle for power and there were so many military Rebellions going against the central government including the current government was in the bush fighting the previous government
0: So you were an internally displaced person that means you you were Displaced from your home, but within the borders of the country of of Uganda. Is that right?
2: Yeah? Yeah, yeah, it means I was not displaced out of my country it means I was displaced from within my country being uh, displaced from one community to another community, but also everywhere we ran, wherever we took refuge, we would set up a camp. So camp life, it means so much to me because is the community I was born in is the community I was raised in. I developed my faith and my hope, also my courage in the environment of a displacement in the camp settings. Life in conflict, life in the camp is not something new to me. It's something that shaped my discipline, my choices of life.
0: You set up the African Youth Initiative Network. So your experience as a child and growing up in, in those circumstances led you to do that. Can you tell us briefly what that organization does?
2: After being born and raised in the wars zone, in the conflict environment, we were left with very little as young people on what to choose. Not so sure about what tomorrow looked look like. We own education. You're worried if the day you are living today, you'll wake up to see the next day. And of course, as a child, the most annoying bit was to see your parents walk out to look for firewood, to fetch water, to look for food. Your biggest uncertainties was if they would ever come back all my life. This was the fear, because majority of the parents who went looking for life for their children, for food, for water, for firewood, they would never make it back. They were abducted, they were killed, they were sexually abused, so the fear of knowing that your parents have gone to look for food were venturing in the, in the deepest space for insecurity was the most traumatizing. People younger than you, as young as 12 of 9, were being abducted and recruited as child soldiers, were being forced to kill their own parents, to, force, uh, to sexually abuse their families in a way that to tactfully traumatize them so much they would never want to come back home again. So this was the space that we are left. We are growing up in a community clouded by violence and hopelessness. So then we came up, we formed a peace club when I was uh, 13 years old. I was in the camp. I started by forming a peace club. And what's a peace club? The peace club, I mobilized a group of fellow youth, fellow community members who did not agree with the move by the forces to recruit children as soldiers committed and determined to say no to the child soldiers' recruitment. And this was being done by men in uniform across a uh, section of the rebels, but also on the government side where the young people had to become auxiliary forces to protect their own communities. It was the most dangerous venture, most dangerous move to talk about peace in an environment when there is no peace. I was called cowards, defined as weak, undetermined and patriotic, but I knew in my own heart that All I wanted was that every child be given opportunity to stay peacefully with their parents, to go to school and live a better life. So that was the Peace Club. Until 2005, on the peak of war, when I said that I'm now grown up, I could pick up the gun. I could now join the fighting force. I could do anything deadly or share my pain in the most aggressive way. But I said, no, I will not do that. I will instead use my energy as a young person to mobilize and set up African Youth Initiative Network, which is an organization we formed in 2005, primarily to mobilize youth and communities in promoting peace and justice. And this has been an opportunity for us to make peace and justice a reality for communities affected by conflict. We, through the African Youth Initiative Network, we've been engaging community dialogue, uh, supporting return and reintegration of former child soldiers, and working towards conflict prevention, and most importantly, supporting the victims and survivors who have been tortured, who have been sexually abused, who have been beaten, who have been wounded, and to date, we've provided reconstructive medical rehabilitation to over 25,000 young people, women and children. Those whose lips, nose, ears were cut off during war, but also those who are sexually abused, People are living with chronic war wounds as a result of gunshots, torture, and beating. And right now, we are working hard, hand-in-hand, hand, to provide psychosis support, to support the families whose children were abducted. Over 30,000 are still missing to date. They have never been seen again. And these are families with the missing family members, with hope that one day they will see them again. I
0: mean, you've experienced this firsthand, haven't you? Your brother was recruited by the LRA, and he disappeared effectively. Are you able to talk about that?
2: Yeah. It was in 2003, on the peak of war, when I was young and energetic and looking forward to what can I do to become part of the change I was looking for in the society. And remember I'd made a commitment when I was a child at the age of 13, Regardless of the circumstance, I will always choose to be peaceful. I'll never pick up the gun. I'll never learn how to shoot a gun. The hardship of life came closer to me. came a lot closer to me when my own brother was two years older than me, and my cousin and my other closer family members were abducted by the rebels of the Lord Resistance Army. That was perhaps the most trying moment in my life because I... I wondered if my choice for peace was the right thing to do then, because how would I be so defeated? How would I be so unable enabled, helpless and powerless to help my, save my own brother? It's now coming to two decades since my own brother was abducted and he has never come back home alive. I am I'm worried, I'm a, I pray, because I also fear that my own father who's over 80 years right now is losing hope because he says that after waiting for close to 20 years for his abducted son to come back home alive, he has not come back. And chances are dwindling that he will ever see him again. This is the pain that my family, like many other families in Northern Uganda, over 30,000 people have never been accounted for. And it's the wound that remains open to families, to the communities, And also, it's the wound that risks escalating the pre-existing mistrust or creating another era of conflict, if not well handled. And that's why I do whatever I can to use my personal experience, but also to put myself in the picture, identify with the victims and the survivors like me, to say, let us transform our trauma, our pain, our suffering, our tears into water to build a new society of hope, of kindness, of peace, so that people will be able to celebrate life, but also bring an end to the prevailing and cyclic of violence that has torn apart our society. So that's about my brother, and that's about brothers of many other people who are still missing.
0: Do you think there are things, experiences, that you have in common with refugees and displaced people around the world. I wonder if that thing of families being split apart is one thing that probably is a shared experience of most refugees.
2: War destroys one key institution. Not the government, not the United Nations, not the international organizations, not the politics, but war destroys. One key institution, and that is the family. If families are split apart, families lose members, families become so hopeless, separated for life. They live in that endless sense of unknowingness, you know, not knowing what will happen again. It's very difficult to see something good come out of a community where families are destroyed to see something come out of a, a child that has known nothing other than violence. Worst of all, to, to see children grow up from becoming, the risk of them growing up from being child victims to becoming adult perpetrators are so high in an environment of war. But once the families are destroyed, dismantled, disintegrated, it becomes so difficult for society to build and become peaceful because of the destroyed families. When people's hopes get washed away, when families are destroyed, not when society is destroyed, but when families are destroyed, many hope get washed away and people start just living. After all, I will never live to see my next birthday. Maybe I, maybe I don't count, maybe I don't belong. I'm not good enough and marginalized and discriminated. I'm unwanted. That kind of feeling becomes stronger in every situation you lose your family. The sense of belonging disappears. Unfortunately, what I lived many years ago is still being lived today. Two weeks ago, I was in the refugee camps in Palorinya, in West Nile of Uganda. South Sudanese refugees and Congolese refugees, meeting with them, talking with them, hearing them, cry loud, and their pain, their feeling, their hopelessness. They felt good that I was at least coming back, as one of them, who have been through what they are going through, who understood their pain. Only when, until one of us comes forward and talks about our stories and tell our stories with hope, with dignity, with respect. Otherwise, we are not being listened to, we're not being represented fully.
0: would you like people to understand, people who've been lucky enough to grow up not having to flee their homes, what do you think those people don't
2: understand about being a refugee? What would you like them to understand? I've been lucky in life that I've seen the best life can give and the, the worst life can get to somebody. And I've been able to see the extreme uh, in humanity and extreme humanity, the prosperity in a way, the challenge that comes about uh, hardship of conflict is one you're struggling to manage the misfortunes. Managing the hardship, managing the war, managing the effects of uh, feeling not human, uh, inhumanity. And that kind of feeling needs a very loving encounter. If you not, don't have that loving encounter, the suffering that goes for too long stretches to the nerves of your humanity. Needs a very loving encounter in order to bring change into the community. So in a way, I do think one an area that I've seen people transform their trauma, their pain, their suffering into an opportunity for leadership. Like what I tried to do, I said, not let this weigh me down, but let me use it as a, pl- a platform, a springboard to make this an opportunity for me to grow and become a new person in the society. And then there is one part of the humanity that they are not struggling to manage the misfortunes. They're struggling to manage the opportunities at hand. So there's a disconnect because there are people who have it all, but they're still very ungrateful in life. From my side and also from the side of people I work with, even though we may not have it all, but we are grateful and glad for what we have. We have the gift of life, but also the gift to keep on pursuing, doing more. Somebody totally lacks it. They say you're crying for two new pairs of shoes, yet somebody's crying for one feet that was blown off by the landmine. So it's a different equation altogether. But also suffering in Northern Uganda, suffering in Africa is no different from suffering anywhere in the world. Of course, with COVID came a lot of learning that we are all human. We are all powerless. We are all fragile. We just don't need to wait for the suffering to knock our doors before we act in the care for those who are suffering. And I pray that we all navigate through this difficult moment of COVID and work towards building a society that is inclusive, that is human, that cares and that's standing for one another. Let's get each other's back
0: people can find out more about your work if they search the African Youth Initiative Network. Victor Chen, it's been fascinating listening to your story. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Victor Ochen and there'll be a link to the African Youth Initiative Network on the blog that accompanies this episode. Find that and all our podcasts at wf.ch slash podcasts. Subscribe to Get Radio Davos every week wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with editing by Jerry Johansson and technical support from Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you. You for listening to Radio Davos and goodbye.